Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday service. Special welcome to our guests and visitors and all those watching online. My name is Nayaswami Pranabha, and this is Nayaswami Parvati. This reading is taken from rays of the one light with commentaries on both the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita written by Swami Kriyananda. Today's focus is, is God present even there where there is ignorance? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, makes a reference to the divine light that is obscure to the rational faculty, but that enlightens a higher nature. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Reason recoils from this statement with innumerable questions. What is this darkness? Is it conscious that it should comprehend anything? What sort of light would be capable of shining in darkness without transforming at least that part of the darkness in which it shines into light? Does this light shine only at night? And if so, why only then? The solution is that to divine sight, even daylight seems darkness. The sun itself, like the moon, which shines only by reflected light from the sun, is but a kind of reflection of the cosmic light, which being immaterial, is invisible to the eyes, but which is the great source of all material reality. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramhansa Yogananda describes his youthful visit to Ram Gopal Muzumdar, the sleepless, the sleepless saint, who lived in that vision of that hidden light. Around midnight, Yogananda wrote, Ram Gopal fell into silence, and I lay down on my blankets. Closing my eyes, I saw flashes of lightning. The vast space within me was a chamber of molten light. I opened my eyes and observed the same dazzling radiance. The room became a part of the infinite vault, which I beheld with interior vision. Why don't you go to sleep? Sir, how can I sleep in the presence of lightning, blazing whether my eyes are shut or open? You are blessed to have this experience. The spiritual radiations are not easily seen. The saint added a few words of affection. This is the light that shineth in darkness. It has been described variously in the great scriptures. In the Bhagavad Gita, in the 11th chapter, the devotee Arjuna is given an experience of the infinite state and exclaims in awe, If there should rise suddenly within the skies sunbursts of a thousand suns, flooding earth with beams undeemed of, then might that Holy One's majesty and radiance dreamed of. Thus through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, oh, oh. I'd like to welcome you also. It's wonderful to be here. So I'll begin by reading from Whispers from Eternity. Save us from the net of matter attachment. The fisherman of change has cast over us a net of cosmic delusion. We are swimming in confined waters, falsely confident 
in our seeming safety. Yet the net of death closes in upon us relentlessly. At every haul of the dragnet of delusion, many are caught and only a scattered few escape. Ah, but at long last, I leapt out into deep sea spaces of silent communion. Thus finally did I escape the net of time. O measureless mercy, save me and all my brothers from this fearful, all-seizing, but unseen net of matter attachment. So there was a time when God and a scientist were talking together. And uh, the scientist very presumptuously said, so I know you're the creator of the universe, but I can create anything that you create. And God said, oh, really? Well, let's give it a try. <laughs> and so they both bent down, and God said, no, no, go get your own dirt. <laughs> But <laughs> we all laugh, but you know, that, that's pretty obvious. But it's like uh, when Gyandev last week was just putting, uh, saying off all the different, you know, the billions of galaxies, you know, in Swami's lifetime, they had just, so this is just 90 years ago or, you know, 80 years ago or whatever, they just thought there were two galaxies or maybe three. Now they know there are billions. And so, you know, you think, Wow, how can the rational mind keep going in this materialistic direction without saying, hey, there must be something more going on here. There must be a higher source. There must be a higher power that's been able to manifest all of this. And that would switch things completely, 180 degrees. We're no longer in charge as human beings. The ego is subdued, and we look at things a lot differently. But you know what? That hasn't happened. No matter how many discoveries have been made by science and how much they keep saying, oh, well, no, we were wrong. Let's, let's move along, and we'll make it better. You know, it'll, it'll be, uh, we'll get it right this time. It doesn't ever happen. And so it just shows you all of us, reminds all of us, the power of delusion and of the ego to keep us bound in that delusion. Because it looks like, and as the reading uh, from the rays said, the, the cosmic lights are not easy to see. They really, you have to have deep concentration to be able to see these things. But for all of us, I was just thinking about different ways that the light actually pierces through that darkness because it's not an easy thing to do. And uh, again, just as a fun thing, I was looking at a little book that I enjoy reading periodically. It's called A Woman Clothed with the Sun. And it's about all the appearances of Divine Mother of Mary, uh, starting with the 1500s and all the way up to more recent times, 1900s. But uh, I just wanted to recap the very earliest one, 
because it was, again, so dynamic and so life-changing for the people of that time. And that was in Mexico, 1531, and five miles north of Mexico City at that time. Mexico City was still islands and, you know, swampy and all of that hadn't been filled in yet. But at that time, in this little village called Guadalupe, there was a young, not young, there was a middle-aged, 55 years old, actually was ancient for that time, a man who was a peasant. And uh, he was devout, but uh, nothing, I don't think anything special, but he must have been special. Because what happened is that over a period of two or three days, he would run to see his uncle every day. But in this time period, a young girl appeared. And she, she appeared at Tepeyac, which was a little hill, which was anciently known for a temple of the mother, anciently. And, uh, and this young girl all of a sudden would appear to him and called to him, and he was impatient because he needed to go and take care of his uncle, who was very ill at the time. And so this happened several times, and the last time, and she talked with him, Juan Diego, how are you, and you know, wanted him to run down five miles to Mexico City, which wasn't, again, unheard of for that time. People were running, like him, peasants, a lot. And so uh, she asked him to run down and tell the authorities there that she would like a, a chapel built here on this hill again. And so he did that and was ill-treated in Mexico City. He went to the bishop's palace. I mean, who was he? Nobody. And so he went to the bishop's palace. They knocked him around. And finally, he did get to see the bishop somehow. And he gave him the message. And the bishop just looked at him and he said, bring me a sign, naturally. I mean, that's the, always the reaction. But he said, bring me a sign. And so on the last day of these apparitions, and this young girl, by the way, was quite young, and she was Indian, indigenous Indian, dark-skinned and beautiful, but very young. And, uh, and she was treating him as a young man. She was young, much younger than him. Uh, but at any rate, she said to him, Juan Diego, again, you must go. You must go to the bishop and tell him we need a chapel here. And he said, I can't go. For one, my uncle is dying, and I need to go to him right now. And for the other, they won't do it. You have to show something. And uh, so she said, fine, it's the middle of winter, but go up on top of the hill and cut down the roses that are there. And he thought, yeah, sure. There's not, everything's frozen here. And, uh, but being a peasant, he was used to obeying orders. He ran up the hill, and sure enough, on the top of the hill were beautiful Castilian roses. And so he quickly cut them. He was in a hurry because he had to get to his uncle who was dying. And so he quickly cut the roses and brought them down. And when he opened his tilma, his shawl, uh, they all fell out. And he started to pick them up, and she said, no, no, I'll arrange them for you. So she picked up each one, and she placed it particularly on his shawl. And she said, now take this, hold it, cover it up, and do not show anyone 
but the bishop. And so again, he ran down to Mexico City, five miles away. And he got there, and again, you know, he, he was a nobody. So they smacked him around a little bit and didn't want to, you know, wanted to see what was in there, and, and they jostled him a bit. But then he did finally, there was something about him, probably, that uh, they allowed him to see the bishop. And he said, this is what I've come to see. And he said, I'm very sorry. I've jostled these things all around, and they're probably a mess. And he let down his tilma and imprinted. He, he couldn't see it himself. But immediately in front of him, the bishop and all the others beside him were kneeling and bowing down, not to him, but to what was displayed there. And it was the Virgin of Guadalupe. And so it was a beautiful Indian, uh, looked like an Aztec princess with a shawl that had stars all over it, brown-skinned, and just beautifully, beautifully displayed. And it was an absolute miracle that no rational thought could get rid of. And, uh, and that, but the interesting thing was, because we think, oh, well, that was nice that happened. And, but this was a huge deal in this time because it erased a lot of racial boundaries, at least spiritually, not necessarily dogma and Catholic Church and all of that, but it erased a lot of uh, racial uh, discrimination that was happening from the Spaniards, the Mexicans, and then the indigenous Indians. And so, because here was this virgin, absolutely a miracle, and yet brown-skinned, obviously not a white uh, uh, Spanish-looking princess. So anyway, from that time on, it's said that thousands, and also the name Guadalupe was known in Spain, was known because of this little village in Mexico, but also sounded to the Indians in their language like a phrase of she who crushes the serpent. And this was very, very uh, important for that time because they were just coming out of a time of human sacrifice, the serpent god, all the Indians, and it was a, a big thing. And now, not only was she one of them, but she who crushes the serpent. They were done with that. And so she uh, and they connected as well as everyone else. And it's said that thousands of Indians came then to be baptized. It would, because she was theirs, they felt the connection there. And uh, baptized and married. Doesn't matter what happened after that, but it was a moment in time that really opened up a spiritual renaissance and brought the teachings of Jesus to thousands of people who hadn't had that before, couldn't quite relate to it before. Fast forward 400 years, and who brings the light to the America? Master Paramahansa Yogananda in 1920, arrived in Boston. And he was the messenger of light for our time, the light in the darkness that the darkness couldn't comprehend. And we think, but 
wow, I mean, he went all over and people did come, thousands of people to his lectures. But remember, he gave that one talk in Minneapolis where 5,000 people came and Dr. Lewis was there and he said, wow, Master, look at all these people that came and how wonderful it will be. And Master just looked at him and he said, we'll be lucky to get five students out of this. And he said, that's exactly what they got. So he stirred up a lot. He brought the light. He allowed people to be exposed to things. But a lot of it was curiosity. And as the LA Times, Los Angeles Times, said about Yogananda's lectures at the Philharmonic, a Hindu bringing Christian teachings to a Christian country. It was a phenomena. They didn't know what to think of him. And, but yet, what he was saying was the truth. And so Yogananda had that amazing ability to cut through a lot and to bring light in a very big way to America in particular, to the West, yes, but his mission really was to America. And what did he bring? The original teachings of Jesus and the original teachings of Krishna, as taught in the Bhagavad Gita. To bring that consciousness in so that people could expand their awareness, open their minds to something bigger than what, uh, what they were used to. And why did he come to America? Well, he said in India, he experienced the vision of many souls calling to him from this country, future saints, people who wanted more, who wanted God. And so he came. And he brought not only those dynamic concepts, but he brought techniques. Because 500, 400 years before, the, the vision and the, the uh, tilma was good. That was good enough for Mexico at that time. But for America, that wouldn't have made it. <laughs> a vision of Divine Mother, it, they've happened here in this country. How much impact have they had? But Americans want to know how to do it. And so Master brought techniques. He spent the first three or four years in Boston and around that area attuning to what was the American consciousness like. And so he brought what we needed. And so that is the way for all of us that we can attune to the light, that we can prove to ourselves that that light is real. Energization, Hong Sa, Om technique, Kriya Yoga, a liberating technique, these all allow us to experience for ourselves what it's all about. And what that, because we can talk about light, but if you never see the light, if you have no experience of that in any way, what does that mean to you? Then it can just get into dogma and affirmation and all of that. But this path, these teachings, they're living, they're dynamic. And they're a way Master came and offered us the way to make that part of our, excuse me, to make that part of our lives. And so then we go to 1969 and we have Ananda. And Ananda came not only to bring the teachings,
but also community, spiritual community living. The way that people, everybody, not everybody, but people everywhere could see the example of what it looked like. What does it look like? We talk about living the teachings, but what does that actually look like in a, in a spiritual community? And so from 1969 onward, we established Ananda Village, places in Palo Alto, Sacramento, Seattle, Portland, East Coast, and just spread that ideal, but the living example. You know, Master says in the autobiography that community is better understood by, by living example, not just by precept. And so it was really just an extension of that, of his coming, that Ananda now exists and, and is able to offer that. So I just wanted to say that because this is a time when we're dealing with a lot out there that is really, um, the darkness is, and it's, you can say darkness, let's say ignorance, uh, spiritual ignorance, people are asleep, whatever, but it's very active right now. And, uh, and also Ananda, because of its practices, and anyone who does this, but, but we have community, and that makes a big difference. It provides places of stillness in that huge turmoil of delusion, which is very, very active. And so it allows us to uh, offer to people by our own lives the example, how to do it. How do we actually live these teachings? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And uh, so we've been doing that for 50 years. And then last June, we had uh, a celebration of 50 years. And it was actually one of the most remarkable weeks that I've ever experienced because people from all over the world came who are deeply engaged in this path and these teachings. And the vibration during that week was absolutely astounding. It was so uh, uh, joyful and open and expansive and people just really uh, engaging with each other. One woman, I remember I was looking you know, in the seats here and I remember talking with her and she doesn't live in an Ananda community but she, uh, I was just greeting her one day at one of the classes and I said, wow, this is a pretty amazing experience and an amazing week. And she said, yes, you know, she's been to a lot of big spiritual gatherings that are a lot different uh, than this. And she said, yes, it's a lot less rajasic than I thought it would be. And I thought, yeah, of course it is. It's all us, <laughs> you know? And again, us meaning people who practice the teachings, who are really engaged in all of that. So the other thing that I was thinking about and just uh, remembering is what, what is it like for people who aren't living the teachings, who aren't in the light? And I had a very interesting experience this way. 
Um, I had been living at Ananda for, oh, about three years. And suddenly it came into my mind, I should invite my parents to come here for Christmas. Uh, you know, it was like, wow, really? <laughs> you know, this is at a time when we had no paved roads, outhouses, uh, no electricity most places, you know, seclusion retreat, meditation retreat, da da da, all of that. But my parents had been coming up here to see me two or three times a year. So they were somewhat familiar. We didn't usually get into the, um, a lot of the places where I lived and all of that because that would have been a little much for them. But at any rate, <laughs> but I thought Christmas, hey, that'll be fun. You know, and I thought, really? <laughs> and so I, I hesitated when I saw them, but then I thought, just do it, just do it. And so I did. I said, why don't you come for Christmas? And there was a little motel down at Peterson's Corners uh, on the way to French Corral there, right on 49. There was a little uh, four-room motel, and so I booked them a room there, and, and they came, they just came for, I think, one overnight, which was good. <laughs> because, it, and it was, it was good, it wasn't a bad thing. So they arrived on Christmas Eve day, and as soon as they arrived, took them, got them settled, and, uh, and then we went for Christmas Eve. Well, that was at the meditation retreat. So we drove up there in the dark and, you know, flashlights and outhouses and all of that, go into the uh, common dome, and uh, Christmas Eve was a celebration. And so it was very sweet, um, but Swami read P.G. Woodhouse, and he read Pig Hui. And so I just, it was, it was interesting because I thought, and he came over at one point and he said, oh, how are you liking our Christmas to my parents? And they just kind of, you know. <laughs> but, but what was interesting, and then the next day, back to the meditation retreat, that was our main place, and we had a present opening and Swami spoke and all of that, and he probably spoke the night before as well. It was all very sweet for all of us living here. But uh, I could feel from my parents, both uh, in the evening and the next day, they didn't have the, and they're both gone now, so I can say things that won't matter. <laughs> they didn't have the mental agility to be able to appreciate what was here. Uh, they were set more in their way, nothing bad. They just, and I would say this probably about a lot of people who come here not wanting to come here, but they just, you know, happen to end up here some way, but they didn't have the mental agility and the mental openness to be able to appreciate what was here. And I thought, it's really a good lesson. I need to keep this in mind when relating to other people. Because it was fine, one overnight was great, and then um, uh, they had a taste of the kind of life that I was living. But uh, more than that, no, no point. And it would not have been fair to them, would not have been helpful for them, because they weren't asking for the light. <laughs> they were living in uh, just a comfortable life and, and enjoying that, that was fine. And they enjoyed seeing me. So, uh, but at any rate, it was a good lesson in that way of just being careful when we talk to people and when we 
relate to people who are a distance away from that and are a lot of the people that come here they do they are interested we do uh, have something to offer them but again little by little I also remember along those lines that Swami Kriyananda would say he said when I travel alone and uh, people ask me what I do I tell them a little bit I tell them oh I uh, I teach. If they ask more, then I tell them a little more. In other words, he said, I don't tell people, oh, I'm the founder of Ananda, and I teach yoga and meditation, and you know, just a big picture for people that maybe aren't interested in any of that. Wouldn't help them, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be uh, helpful for them. Anyway, but it, it just is good to keep in mind as we uh, relate to more and more people who, they are searching, but it's a, it's a careful thing. You know, it's something where we really want to be careful. But for all of us, the one thing I wanted to um, mention toward the end here is that how do you really keep open to that light and moving ahead with that light? Because it's not a one-time thing. I was also remembering looking back at uh, my early years here, that after about two and a half years or so, um, I made a big change in my life. A big change happened, and it was, and I wanted it, and it was very important, but through that big change, I went a lot deeper spiritually. And uh, I wasn't kind of aware of that before I made the change. And so, just be aware, and for me it involved uh, location, it involved satsang with other people that were more attuned to how I wanted to live my life in a deeper way spiritually. So <clears throat> it, it matters even in a community, spiritually focused like Ananda, village and others, um, that we seek out the, the other, the satsang, meaning other people usually, that will uh, be helpful for us in particular to help us grow spiritually. You know, it's a, it's a, a particular and individual thing how each of us grows, and so it will look a little different for every person. But be aware that it isn't just a one-time thing. You know, that, oh, now I'm here and everything's great. We need to keep going, and we need to keep opening Deepening meditation, sure, of course, but how that can happen is, is by regular sadhana, but also by the environment that you're in. Not just at the village, but with other people. So be aware and be um, uh, moving forward in your spiritual life. It's how we all will grow, is to look at this as an ongoing spiritual Evolution, as we, as we like to say with the purification ceremony, we say, by the grace of our masters, you are free, but come back next week as well. <laughs> because it's a level of freedom. You know, people have odd ideas about how spiritual growth happens, and it does not happen, boom, boom. You know, now I'm not spiritual, now I'm spiritual, now you're free, you're free. No, no, it's always incremental. It's always deepening. And we have to 
want that, be open to that, be awake and ready, and be impersonal, and be just, again, all the things of growing that will really allow us to do that. You know, Master, he, he was always working with the people that wanted that. And Swami says this in The New Path. He has uh, descriptions of how Master worked with people. And if people wanted to go deeper, he was always working with them, meaning saying, what about this? Why don't you do that? You know, why did you do this? Challenging them to be awake, to be uh, constantly looking at who they are spiritually and as a person and moving forward, not just going back to sleep again. The last satsang that Swami gave before he went away and didn't come back, he said at the very end, the wolf is always at the door, meaning delusion. We're not, and Master said this, you know, just to remind us all, you know, he said, you're not safe until you're in Nirvikapa Samadhi. That means the highest <laughs> Samadhi. And so just be careful. Be active in your spiritual life and in your growth and how you live it and, and challenge yourself. You know, don't, you may feel like you're, oh, I'm already too challenged. Well, that's fine. Then deal with the challenges you have. But, but don't go back to sleep. You know, really, if it's too comfortable, it's not a good sign. It, it needs to be open. Not to make everybody nervous and, oh, I really need to keep going and all of that. No, no. It needs to be balanced. <laughs> We're always seeking that balance. And to uh, really open to the fact that Master will come in. If we see ways that we need to grow, ask for His grace to help that happen. And ask for the ways, maybe a new job, maybe a new place to live, maybe a whatever, <clears throat> but ask for that and know that His grace, meaning the power to do that, it will come in as we ask. We have to ask. <laughs> it won't just be put on us, generally speaking, but, uh, but it will be a flow that we desire to have more and more expansion in our lives. And so uh, keep these things in mind. They're, they're wonderful. And being here gives us an incredible opportunity that we have worked for many, many, many lifetimes to have the opportunity to grow in this way and to have Master for our Guru and Swami for our spiritual teacher. Long you've toyed with me, we 
From beggars empty hands, gifts of life, they too were seeking. Gifts none could share. Friend, how long will you wander? Friend, as long as you seek your home in a land where all are strangers. Sweet song. 